When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. And by Onyx Maps. Know where you stand. You're listening to the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome back to the show for episode number 36. The podcast is brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, where adventure awaits you. And Onyx Maps. Know where you stand. Download the Onyx Hunt app on the iTunes and Google Play Store today. Go to GumleafUSA.com. Use promo code PU2018 to get free shipping on your next pair of hunting boots. Check out Gumleaf Boots at GumleafUSA.com. And a special quick shout out to Bird Dog Coffee. Thank you so much. A couple weeks ago they sent me package of the Boykin blend, which is actually like a roasted bourbon pecan blend of coffee grounds. Fantastic stuff. Wanted to try it out a little bit. I usually brew it on Sundays because it's kind of like a special occasion. Love this stuff. Bird dog coffee. I think I got to check out the sportsman's blend next. I've heard that's good, but check out bird dog coffee. It's good stuff. Thank you for sending me that. And this week's winner of the Project Upland podcast gear giveaway is Kevin Clark. Kevin, we appreciate it. Thank you for sharing last week's episode of the show. Kevin has won himself a Project Upland hat or t-shirt. 
You, the listener, could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast Gear Giveaway. All you have to do is any and or all of these things. Make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the show. Share the podcast episode. Send us some quality listener feedback. We appreciate all of it. Send me an email. Love to hear from my listeners. Nick.Larson at NorthwoodsCollective.com. That's all I got. Let's get into today's interview. Today's guest is a special one. It was a very fun conversation for me. I've known him for a few years now. He is entertaining to say the least. Today's guest is Bob St. Pierre, Vice President of Marketing and Communications for Pheasants and Quail Forever. Bob is a diehard, passionate upland bird hunter, wildlife conservationist. It's evident in his work and his play. We talk about a lot of that on today's show. He also has spent a fair amount of time behind the microphone as co-host of a Twin Cities-based outdoors radio show along with the Captain Billy Hildebrand. If you haven't heard it, I highly encourage you to check out their radio show there on at Saturday mornings at 6 a.m., bright and early for the outdoorsmen and women driving to the Upland Covers, the boat landings, all of it. It's year-round, Saturday mornings, also available via podcast if you're not up that early every week. Check it out, KFAN Outdoors with Bob St. Pierre and Billy Hildebrand. Without further ado, let's welcome today's guest to the show, Vice President of Marketing and Communications for Pheasants and Quail Forever, Bob St. Pierre. All right, Bob, welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you this evening? Hey, man, I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me on, Nick. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. We're happy to have you. And it's a bit of a steamy one out there, isn't it? <laughs> it's the, uh, you know, one of six days in the, the Twin Cities during the summer where it feels like the, um, we're much nearer the equator than we actually are. So uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm okay with the heat for a couple of days as long as I know that the autumn colors and the autumn temperatures are just around the corner. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's funny that a lot of the conversations that I'm having in my circle of friends right now, we're all sort of turning that corner, you know, we're after the 4th of July and we're really starting to look ahead and yearn for those fall days, but trying to remember and be grateful for the fact that we've still got some fun uh, summertime stuff uh, on the way. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when we've monitored our our web traffic at Pheasants Forever over the years, we can see it starting to, you know, uh, escalate now, and it reaches kind of a fever pitch the third week of August when people are like, okay, you know, we're we're one month away now. So (laughs) you're definitely right that, you know, puppies are coming home right now or they've been home for a couple of weeks and uh, people are thinking about, gosh, I got to, make sure that I tighten up my pointer so they're not creeping or work on uh, you know, soft mouth or X, Y, or Z. They're, they're thinking about that right now because you know, it isn't too long. We'll be chasing grouse and sharpies and timber doodles, and right after that, it'll be roosters. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's pretty. Cool. That's a cool perspective that you can see that web traffic and and see the following. And I, I think it's funny because I I think I had a different conversation with different people today about all those things about puppies coming home, tuning up the dogs, train <laughs> training on birds, all that stuff. It's uh, yeah, it is right around the corner. It's, it's well, awesome. and if you throw in, uh, you know, you look in your freezer and you're like, okay, I've got three of 
these left, and I got to make sure that they don't get freezer burned, and, <laughs> you know, right? Because you got to make room for the next season that's right around the corner too. So it's, you know, it's a different way of looking, uh, you know, from field to table, um, hardcore right now, uh, to making sure that you're using everything. Yep, that's exactly right. So you heard it here first, listeners. Fire up those grills this weekend at the cabin, and uh, let's let's get those birds cooked up. Now, are you still picking ticks off you from your trip up to uh, the BWCA? I, I, you know, maybe I did it wrong, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't have a single wood tick when Good for I was. You. Um, in, now, you want to ask me about mosquitoes, and that's a different conversation, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, I haven't. I didn't pick a, a single tick off when when I was up there, and I did have both both my short hairs uh, with me on the trail, and we did we did encounter a couple of grouse, which uh, is a little bit of an anomaly for the Boundary Waters. You know, it's not it's not prime grouse habitat, yep. but um, you know, we did see three. Uh, one was with a brood. My dogs were leashed, so nobody has to be worried about anything. <laughs> Those broods are intact, but um, yeah, we saw a little, saw a little grouse action. Um, one on the Gunflint Trail, and uh, two of them um, almost to the Arrowhead Trail. So, way up north. That's awesome. I was, uh, I was definitely going to ask you if you had, if you had seen any signs. I would imagine. I would imagine, obviously, yes, a little buggy up there this time of year, but there's no bad time of year to go to the Boundary Waters. It had to be had to be beautiful. Generally, a good trip. Yeah, it was a, a terrific time. Um, you know, the walleye were not cooperative. They sure, never are for sure. me. Uh, <laughs> well, midsummer but the, uh, too. Uh, but, but the you know, a smallmouth bass were were going pretty good. Um, I never fished lake trout before, and and I gave that a shot. Um, and I'm still uh, searching for my first Laker, but it was, it's fun. It's always fun to go up there and like try to figure out something new. And this year it was Lake Trout and probably the next time up there, I'll have learned a little bit more and it makes it so much sweeter once you, uh, once you score and figure it out. Uh, that's, that's kind of all part of the outdoors process where you're, you're learning, you're constantly learning and figuring out the puzzle. And that's what makes it so such a lifelong engaging pursuit absolutely that the trial and error fuels the fire and it it makes the makes the victories that much sweeter when when they do come so that's awesome i would imagine we're a little too early yet for you to have seen uh morning morning mist uh, on the water probably no no uh no early signs of fall up there yet wishful for that uh no it's a it's a hair early things are uh, very green and uh, i did see you know speaking of wildlife though i, yeah. I did see a, a cow moose and in, in two calves awesome. which um as you know they've struggled dramatically or yep. significantly over the last couple of years for a variety of reasons and so it was so it was really nice to see um a couple of moose up there yeah very cool now one other question on on bwca before we'll kind of transition but i actually had well maybe two questions have you ever hunted in the bwca for for grouse specifically yeah great question i i have not so okay. it's definitely on, on my bucket list i hunt um uh, you know I, I hunt all over that area but just south of it yeah. i've never hunted into the boundary waters 
uh, it, it probably because it's not not historically known as great grouse habitat. Yeah. You know, it's it's a little bit more into that um, I don't know, Canadian glacial shield, so you don't get as much of the um, um, young aspens that you're typically targeting for for grouse hunting. There certainly are birds up there. My experience has been. You know, you want to focus a little bit further south, maybe the Sawbill Trail out of Tofty. And there's some pretty good uh, grouse management um, areas on the Caribou Trail out of Lutzen, too. Or at least good looking. I haven't haven't actually hunted them myself, but um, it's on the list. I just haven't done it. Yeah, it's an interesting idea because if your goal is to flush and have the most productive grouse hunt possible, the Boundary Waters probably isn't going to be at the top of anyone's list simply because it's not. There is no active forest management up there, and I when I say active forest management, I mean man-made forest management because right. because that's that's. completely the opposite concept of what the BWCA is. So if you're looking for the most productive grouse hunting, like you said, just right near that area where they are actively logging and and working on more of that early successional forest would be a great place to target. Now, the other unique thing about the BWCA hunting trip is that, you know, obviously – it adds other elements that for guys like you and I that could get a little bit nostalgic and you think about some of those burn areas where the forest fires have gone and ripped through and and traditionally how grouse cover was was created. And that's what, actually what I had a listener asking me about because uh, he wants to do it. He wants to do kind of bucket list trip, do a canoe trip and a grouse hunting trip. And the first thing I thought of was get on Onyx Maps and look at those because they have the forest fire layers up there. And, and I, I pulled it up myself and looked at it. I mean, they're right there. And I, I'm curious, did you see any any of the burn areas? Did you go buy any of that stuff that looked like maybe it was good cover yet? Uh, yeah, you know, actually, I did. Um, there was a fire in the early 2000s. I want to say it was like 2004. Um, on Seagull Lake. Okay, yep. And um, I did happen to encounter uh, during a lunch break at a campsite um, a grouse with a brood. Uh, so I didn't have my dogs along on this component of the trip, but there was a grouse with a brood on an island in the Boundary Waters on Seagull Lake. And I know exactly where that island is. So <laughs> <laughs> that might be the exact place to go and, and, and check out. But you're exactly right. There's been a number of fires up there and some blowdowns, and that's the natural, uh, quote-unquote, forest management that would lead to some yeah little bit higher bird numbers but i think your your point of you know it's a it's a bucket list destination to maybe bag one grouse and manage your expectations like if you go up there for you know a long weekend and you get a grouse like raise your hands and um in victory and call that call that good because you're not going to have epic flushing days it is more about the experience and the nostalgia and you know you could definitely do you know the cast and blast um you know canoe in the fall and, and catch catch some walleyes you know maybe a monster northern maybe a lake trout at a at a grouse to the mix on a portage and you know it might be one of the greatest memories of your life but if you're looking for purely holding a grouse camp probably not the top 200 places you would go (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and that's uh 
that's very well said. And I, I, I knew you had made the trip up there, so I, I wanted to touch on that a little bit. That's 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 very cool. One one last thing before we leave that. The last time I was in the Boundary Waters, actually, we had a really nice campsite on a pretty large island. And sure enough, we were on the island. We flushed two or three grouse. And it was, you know, I mean, it was a decent size island, but it wasn't that big. You could walk around it in a half hour. And it's just it's just funny to think about that you know those little islands up there can can sustain sustain a population of birds. I mean it's it's pretty neat. Yeah, for sure. You know, and and then you add to the mix that um, you know there's Grouse Lake, there's Partridge Lake. Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> and to be able to hunt around some of those are are really cool. You, you know, the other island story I, I have for you, and just to switch gears real quick. Yeah. One of the most epic hunts of my, you know, it is the most epic hunt of my life. Um, about, let's see, it was probably 2008 because my short air, my first short air was a year old. I, I floated down the Missouri River in Montana and we would pop out on these islands and let the dog loose. And um, so it was in the Missouri breaks, the cornfields and agriculture up on top, these ridges, down in the islands in the Missouri breaks or in the Missouri River, there was the oasis of habitat. We'd float the canoe, we'd pull up onto this island, and we'd let the dog go, and it was unbelievable, you know, just gorgeously beautiful, and then, boom, the dog would, it would go on point, you'd walk up, and there'd be a rooster, and you'd be hunting these islands that were 5 to 40 acres. And, oh, we, we filmed a television show for... Uh, uh, well, it's it's our show now called The Flush. It yeah. used to be Pheasants Forever Television. We we did an episode of there, and it's been rebroadcast on Minnesota Bound. But man, that was so much fun! It, it, you never think about hunting islands for upland birds. You know, you think naturally ducks are different things, but man, that was that was really really cool. It was beautiful and and just epic yeah talk about epic upland hunts that absolutely uh, fits the bill i have for sure seen snippets of that episode i was going to ask you about that was that a trip that uh captain billy hildebrand made an appearance on <laughs> yeah it was a it was a media hunt that pheasants forever put together with the theater roosevelt conservation partnership okay um we put that on, like I said, maybe a decade ago, and guys like Andrew McKeon, former editor of Outdoor Life, was there. Billy joined me. There was Rich Landers from Spokane, an outdoor writer. So we had a group of maybe oh, 12 people. Anthony Houck, who you know from yep. the, uh, from our office, was with us, and we broke up into groups of two uh, jumping into canoes. There were two canoes with two people, so a group of four with two canoes per hunting group, and we hunted different um, stages of the Missouri and went down the river and hunted um, these islands in different segments. And uh, Yeah, we filmed the television show and did some articles on it. Billy always gives me grief because, you know, Billy's the guy I do um, outdoors radio show out of the Twin Cities called Fan Outdoors on K-Fan. Yeah. It's picked up uh, from North Dakota, South Dakota, across Minnesota, Wisconsin. And we've been doing the show for, for, well, I've been doing it with him for about um, uh, a little over 10 years. Billy's been doing the show for uh, 25 years. Yeah. But um, 
his nickname is the captain and his name is the captain because he was a professional fisherman. He's the fishing guy. I'm kind of the hunting guy. And so I'm like, well, he's the captain. I got to put him in the back of the canoe. You know, that's where the the captain should sit in the canoe. And and he's never been in a canoe. Unbeknownst to me, he had never been in a canoe. And, and, you know, we're floating down this river and, you know, we're going backwards and sideways. I'm like, captain, what are you doing? do it you know so it, it didn't take long before um i was steering the canoe because i grew up in a canoe in the, the upper peninsula of michigan that's how i learned to fish and and uh it, but it made for a comical television uh, component of a television show because he's you know here's the guy named the captain and he's you know basically tipping us over in the canoe which was pretty entertaining <laughs> That is awesome. I may have heard that story recanted a time or two on. on yeah, he gives me some grief about that on air, probably once every month. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And uh, as you mentioned, you are the co-host of a radio show out of Twin Cities, Fan Outdoors. I've been a been a long time listener. I, I listen every chance I get, and and I really enjoy it. And I, I honestly can say that I have you and the captain to thank as one of uh, my inspirations in, in wanting to, uh, to host this podcast because you guys talk about the outdoors and the stories and what they what it means to you. And the captain's really good about that, uh, about just talking about what things mean to him. And, and yeah. you know, you can tell, you can see the passion. Uh, you can hear the passion, I should say. And, and uh, that's uh, – that, that bleeds out into the listenership, and I, I appreciate what you guys do on there. Well, thank you for the, the very kind words. I, um, I've done that with him for 10 years, and we've become you know, really good friends. You're right. He, he is an absolute pro when it comes to radio. He's been doing it for so long, and, and learned a ton from him. I kind of allow him to steer that ship, and I look at myself as, Try to be the comic relief in that uh, in that <laughs> equation, and um, be the wise ass. And um, most of the time, I guess I come across pretty successfully as a wise ass. <laughs> That's good, I guess. Yeah. But we have a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, that show is, uh, uh, I believe, the longest running, um, highest rated outdoors show, at least in the Midwest and maybe in the country. It's, yeah. it's a it's it's pretty cool how how broad a listenership that is and it, it, it kind of all started through my previous job in, in in baseball i got to know i got to know the folks that are in the uh, programming side of that station through when i worked in minor league baseball and, and i got the job at pheasants forever and quail forever and um there was an opening there and one thing led to the next and pretty quickly i was host co-hosting it uh hunting a fishing show with billy so yeah, it's amazing how, how you know the channels of decisions and paths work in, in uh, throughout life. Yes, absolutely, and and we will segue into that. My last last commentary on on fan outdoors. One of the one of my favorite things about the show is that it is it's a weekly sometimes two nights thursday night and saturday night uh weekly but year-round show and the neat thing is the fact that you cover both hunting and fishing you know there's always there's always something to talk about whether you're your peak season and something and then you've got something coming around the corner and it really 
it really takes you through all the seasons of the year. And, and I love joining in in the anticipation and, you know, the next season coming around the corner. It's a, it's a really great way to, uh, to look ahead and, and daydream a little bit. Well, and it's also one of the things I love about it is that KFAN is the radio home for the Vikings, the Wild, um, and Gophers um, yeah. uh, football. And so when you think about the footprint of Mi- the Minnesota sports scene, you know, you think about North Dakota, South Dakota, you know, for the most part, they're Minnesota fans, you know, Northern Iowa, Western Wisconsin, the footprint is gigantic. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and you think also, like, okay, the Twin Cities is the largest metropolitan area in that geography, you know, outside of Chicago as you get further um, to the south. And we can bring hunting, fishing, and conservation talk to radio airwaves where it's a broader spectrum of, you know, the Midwest listening than just the hardcore hunters and fishermen. So we can, you know, talk about habitat issues and the farm bill and, you know, passing on these traditions and what it means. So, you know, it, does, it is an incredibly important and valuable platform to, you know, talking about all the good things that hunters and anglers do. So there aren't these stereotypes out there about, uh, you know, just being, you know, a bunch of rednecks. Yep. Yep. I absolutely 100% agree. And, and a great way to highlight that is, you know, we're talking right now on the episode of the Project Upland podcast where we, this is a super highly niched podcast directed at a very specific audience, whereas Fan Outdoors is, is much broader. And, you know, there's a there's a time and a place for each one of those things, which is very cool. And we wanted to have you, Bob St. Pierre, on the Project Upland podcast today for a number of reasons. We've already dove into the conversation, talked about a lot of them, but let's rewind a little bit. You are the Vice President of Marketing and Communications for Fez forever why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do every day for pheasants forever bob yeah yeah so pheasants forever and also uh quail forever so so my team um is responsible for putting out um the publications so the pheasants forever journal the quail forever journal and forever outdoors which are which is our youth publication so all told um got 13 publications that our team puts out um, in a given year. We're also responsible for all of our website content, um, our social media platforms, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, the television show that we do in conjunction with Ron Share Productions, which, well, two television shows, The Flush on Outdoor Channel and Rooster Tales, which is on um, the Fox Sports uh, Midwest, uh, Fox Sports North, Fox Sports Wisconsin. Um, And then, you know, we're also, our team is also responsible for um, media relations, um, you know, telling the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever story with journalists, advocating for our issues, um, like taking our farm bill issues to the media, um, action alerts to our members. um, And then we also... Um, our team puts on National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, which is their once-a-year Big Bang Super Bowl of events um, that's held in a different market across the country. And then I guess the last component is 
corporate partnerships. So our national sponsors, advertising you see in the magazine. and um, So it's everything that you would think that would be under the umbrella of marketing and communications for both the Pheasants Forever brand and the Quail Forever brand. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a great summation. I would imagine you've uh, you've you've delivered that a time or two before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's expanded over time too as our organization has grown. You know, when I started in uh, 2003, um, I came uh, I came into the organization working for a guy named Joe Dugan, and at the time, Joe was. Uh, His team was responsible for fundraising, development, uh, corporate partnerships, public relations, and marketing. And um, and so it was me and Joe for for a while, and and Joe's since retired, and now I've got uh, four teams and a group of 16 people working to tell our our Habitat mission and and recruit members every day. So it's it's grown, and um, despite that growth, you know, what's super cool about our organization and kind of a badge of honor is that for the 36 year history of the organization out of every dollar we raise um and this is again 36 years running out of every dollar we raise 92 cents of that dollar gets right into the ground to create more habitat or introduce kids to the outdoors so it's mission delivery on 92 cents on the dollar from a a nonprofit perspective that's you know off the chart successful and something that you know it, it, we're super proud of but it does mean that we're um, really lean and mean we're a 90 million dollar or a year organization delivering habitat at, to the tuna 90 cents on the dollar at a, with a really relatively lean staff for an organization that size Yes, absolutely. That's, that's, you know, certainly when you talk about nonprofits, that's one of the things that you look to. And it's one of the things that's always been, I think, well respected and appreciated about Pheasants Forever, the, the amount of money that does make it back into the ground, which as we all know, and, and want to see, you know, that's, that's the goal that, that you guys want to do, but it means that you wear a lot of hats. And, and like you said, you run a lean staff and, and uh, you, you sort of, uh, I think, leverage people's passions, you know, people, people that work at PF, I, I know a hand full of them they they've got a passion for the outdoors and that that shows in in the work that you guys do yeah you, you know a handful of them you went to high school with <laughs> most of my team didn't you? Uh, that's how, how <laughs> so small I, of a world think is that's that important where you know like you know we're there is a level of conscience there we were all before we came to work here we were all bird hunters um and we're known in this community as being you know really conscientious and you know being the conscience of making sure that um, when those dollars are raised we as much as our members because we are the members we want to see those dollars turn into habitat acres for the mission yeah. you know what I I am an incredibly passionate bird hunter and I as much as any member want to see you know a landscape where there's public access where there's a robust farm bill with CRP acres on the ground to create habitat for pheasants, uh, for quail, for sharpies. But at the same time, I'm, um, you know, I grew up as a grouse hunter. I'm a passionate Rough Grouse Society member. I'm a member of Delta Waterfall and Ducks Unlimited. You know, I, 
I put my money, um, you know, where, where my beliefs and passions are as well. And, um, I want to be held accountable, right. And I want to hold others accountable just the same because I care about it. Yeah, absolutely. And that is an excellent segue. We will definitely circle back to pheasants forever, Bob, but I like to do this with all of my guests on the project of podcast. I want to hear your upland story. Where did it start? (laughs) I know you are a self-proclaimed youper. So take it, take us back, Bob. Take us back to where it all began. Yeah. I've, I've been criticized online. I've seen some of the criticism. He's too proud of being a youper. He talks about the UP too much. And like, well, if there, if I'm going to be criticized about something, then I, I can wear that one with the badge of honor. I um, I did grow up in Escanaba, Michigan, which is on uh, the south central UP, uh, right on Lake Michigan. I didn't grow up on Lake Michigan, but the town that I uh, grew up in in Escanaba is right on Lake Michigan, the high school, um, you know, not too far away, Escanaba High School. I'm an Escanaba Eskimo, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I went to, uh, I grew up about seven miles out of town uh, where I could uh, walk out the back door with my um, 12-gauge Ithaca and nice. uh, start start grouse hunting. Um, I grew up with the um, with a Brittany that was sort of a bird dog, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like uh, like a number of Britneys like to hunt for herself more than me. But I um, her name was Tinker, and I loved her to death. But uh, I, I grew up uh, as a rough grouse and woodcock hunter in Escanaba, and um, have done that since you know I was probably I don't know nine ten years old sure. hunting with a pellet gun. Um, you know, right out of the gates. My my dad and my mom are both uh, bird hunters, so I spent uh, a lot of time walking the trails um, in Delta County, Michigan, and um, uh, all the way towards uh, oh, Kingsford and Iron Mountain, Crystal Falls, and then the Stonington Peninsula. So all across southern the southern UP, and it really, um, you know, I I always enjoyed it, but I, I think. When I went to college in Minnesota and then I would come back in the fall for, for weekend trips or the holidays and I would walk those, you know, those two tracks and logging roads with my mom and dad, that's where I really bonded with my folks, yeah. you know, a combination of, you know, spending those times in the woods but then also the time in my life when, you know, I started seeing things in a different lens or through a different lens. And that's, you know, grouse hunting did that for me. Um, so much so that uh, um, fast forward a little bit, um, I, when I determined that um, uh, Meredith, the gal that I was going to propose to, I went back to uh, one of my favorite uh, grouse hunting spots on the Stonington Peninsula. Um, there's a lighthouse on the end of the Stonington Peninsula where I uh, grouse hunted um, underneath it and duck hunted and goose hunted. And I went up on top of that lighthouse and could see some of my favorite spots. And that's where I got down on one knee at sunset <laughs> and, and proposed to, uh, to Meredith. And on July 2nd, um, about, oh, well, a few years ago now, <laughs> and, uh, uh, that that's how important that sense of place means to me. You know, the UP is kind of my first love and where my heart will always be. Yeah. So I, uh, that, that was kind of the beginnings of my, 
my growth, uh, my upland story, at least in, in the UP. I came to college in, I guess, 1996. I came to, to Minnesota, uh, got a scholarship to go to St. Cloud State, and I started off as a um, English major, and I got a, a, my junior year, um, I did a field experience student teaching in seventh grade class in St. Cloud. Pretty quickly, I added a second major after that. Because <laughs> <And laughs> the student teaching wasn't quite going to be the right fit, so I added a, a mass communications with an emphasis on advertising and PR. And so I came out of St. Cloud with two degrees, uh, mass comm and English. And as, as I was getting toward the end of my senior year, I met, um, uh, we had a guest speaker, Mike Vec, who is the owner of the St. Paul Saints minor league baseball team and came and spoke to the class and, and at the end everybody kind of got up and left i was like my goodness this is you know marketing advertising pr for a baseball team yeah like this is unbelievable and i went up to him and i said i want your job how do i do, how do i make this happen and right like a week later i I was hired to be an intern with the St. Paul Saints in the summer of 96. And if you're a baseball buff, um, the Saints are an independent minor league team, so it's not affiliated with any major league teams. So they could sign players that have left the majors or were undrafted or got in trouble and got released for all sorts of different reasons. So the summer of 96, um, the Saints had Daryl Strawberry. I knew you were going to say that. Jack <laughs> I Morris. That. I mean, it was insane that yeah. all these players uh, <laughs> that I grew up watching. And uh, so I started off as an intern with the Saints. Uh, 96 and worked my way up through different positions to I was the assistant general manager by the time I was ready to leave and I'll throw out one stat for you that I'm kind of proud of as an as an acting minor league general manager because there were five games where our GM had to uh, couldn't be in town so as a quote-unquote <laughs> acting GM I'm five and oh <laughs> I'm, awesome. I'm undefeated um, <laughs> but uh, uh, so it, it was the fall of 2002 so I'd spent seven seasons in seven seasons in the minors and when you're in minor league baseball you're doing everything from um, selling advertising painting the outfield walls so advertising could be put up there you're selling radio um, spots you're doing radio play-by-play of the games you're picking up cigarette butts <laughs> you're picking up you're picking weeds on the outfield warning track you're selling beer in the beer garden you're rolling hot dogs you're doing all sorts of things so from uh easter to labor day you're at the ballpark every single day it doesn't matter if it's saturday or sunday during the spring and summer months, you are at the ballpark. So as, as a kid that grew up in the outdoors, um, for seven years, I literally didn't get to fish. And then the other part of the minors, um, you're in the fall, in the, during the time I was at the Saints, we sold out every single game and every single piece of advertising. And we made our living, like I got paid based on how much advertising inventory and tickets I could sell to gain commission. So you sold the majority of it in September, October, November at the end of the previous season before the next season. Sure. 
well, September, October, November, guess what that time is, right? So it's bird season. So if I took a week off to go to grouse camp in the UP and somebody else is selling the advertising and this advertising was super high demand and I was missing out on commissions. and, And so for seven years, I didn't fish at all. And I really struggled to find time to grouse hunt and to pheasant hunt. And right around that time, I had a buddy that moved from the UP to Northern Iowa, and I'd go visit him in the on long weekends, and we started pheasant hunting. And gosh, I was like, "Whoa, this is this is pretty sweet." And so I started looking for new jobs the fall of 2002. You know, I'd been in the miners for seven years, and I was looking for okay, what's the next opportunity? And I had two job offers: one to be the director of marketing for the Detroit Tigers my childhood team, (laughs) and the other is to um, leave baseball and uh, join Pheasants Forever as the director of marketing. And as you can imagine, that wonderful position to be in, two, you know, absolutely dream jobs. Um, And ultimately, obviously, I I chose um, not to live in Detroit, (laughs) but but to, uh, to, you know, pursue this opportunity to um, not only work in some, an area that I have a passion for, but that I could make a difference to long-term. And so December, let's see, no, I, so my first day was January 6, 2003 at Pheasants Forever. It was uh, four days before the very first National Pheasant Fest, and um, I've been here ever since. So it's been, that was a, that was a long winding road for you out of, uh, your question of what's my upland story, but that's, um, that's kind of the, the, the history of my route so far. Yeah. Well, you made my job really easy, Bob. I asked you one question and you gave it all to us. That was, that was, that was perfect. You know, it was very interesting to me because I, I've heard some of your background and I, you know, I've known you for a few years and we've chatted here and there a little bit and, and I've heard some of that, but I, I never, I don't think I ever knew the legitimate crossroads you had, you know, with those two job offers. I mean, talk about, you know, looking back in hindsight and you can look back, I think fondly on that memory and know that, that, you know, you're confident in your decision, but, but that's a, that's a cool memory. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is, uh, you know, absolutely gratifying to look back and know that I made the right choice. Thankfully that's the case. <laughs> you know, the, the interesting part of the reasons that all came together was um, at the same time, Mike Vack, the guy I mentioned was, he was owner or is owner of the St. Paul Saints. He got hired um, th- that year, the fall of 02, to be in charge of marketing and communications for the Tigers. If you know the name Mike Vack, his dad is Bill Vack, and Bill Vack's in the Hall of Fame through his history with the Cubs and the White Sox. Um, and Bill Vack hired or hired Dave Dombrowski. This is maybe too much baseball for an up. Project Upland podcast, but hired Dave Dombrowski, who's a big name GM in in the baseball circles, and um, Dombrowski offered Mike this opportunity to come to the Tigers, and then I was um, Mike offered the chance for me to follow him, knowing that you know my passion for the Tigers. I mean, my my oldest bird dog is named Trammel, who happens to be the name is a homage to my childhood idol, Alan Trammell, who's yeah. going into the Hall of Fame this year. My middle, middle bird dog, um, Steve Iserman, Steve was my hockey hero. Yeah. Um, so my middle dog was Iserman, call name Izzy. 
And then my third bird dog, uh, my young one, um, is is Escanaba. Um, call name Esky, and that's obviously named after my hometown. So I've got some pretty strong passions for Detroit sports teams and, and the UP, and I guess I keep them alive in some ways with uh, my love of my, my pups. And um, yeah, Izzy isn't around anymore, but Trammell is 11, and, and Esky is four, and uh, they're, they're short hairs, and um, they're my pride and joy for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody that uh, anybody that follows you on Instagram and Twitter, they they would uh, they would be familiar with your with your dogs, their front and center, and, and uh, as as with many of us passionate Alpine hunters. Now, let's let's dive in on that a little bit, you know, because you mentioned you had a Brittany when you were when you were younger, and then I'd imagine you went off, you know, you went off to college, and you kind of went through some some time without a dog. I'm just guessing, but but when did the the bird dogs get back into the picture for you? Yeah, that's a great question. So I did grow up with uh, with Britneys. Um, my folks um, are still a Britney family. My wife, Meredith's family, uh, grew up with Labradors. So it, it's a, um, a little known fact that the compromise in a household between a Labrador and a Britney happens to be the German short hair. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, it's about a year after we were married, um, uh, Meredith and I had made the decision that uh, we were gonna we we're gonna get a, a pup, and we went to game fair and checked out a whole bunch of different breeds and talked to different breeders and um, settled. Uh, we, we settled on the short hair after a little bit of horse trading and debate, um, and have not looked back since. So we've we've had three of them. Absolutely love the versatility of short hairs. You know, I I grew up with Brittany, so I love pointers, and obviously I you know with my background and historic love of going rough grouse hunting. Yeah, I just feel a pointer puts you in a, in an advantage in the grouse woods. And on the pheasant side of things, um, I think it's hard to argue that, you know, a, a Labrador probably puts you in an advantage in a Minnesota pheasant hunt with cattails and, and heavy, uh, heavy cover. Sure. Things change a little as you hunt different states for pheasants. You know, Montana, um, you know, English setter, a bigger running pup might be more advantageous than a lab, for instance. But... Um, you can kind of look at all the different states you hunt and kind of what style you like. And we settled on the short hair as a breed that blends, you know, what, what I love to do uh, from a pheasant and quail hunting perspective that's related to work, while it also gives, us, gives me this style and the pointing that I really enjoy from a from a grouse hunter's perspective and you know it's yeah everybody will tell you that their breed is the perfect breed and um and, or you know no breed's the perfect breed and it's what's perfect for you and the short hair has has been a great fit i i, I definitely hunger to try other breeds i, I love the look of wire hair <clears throat> excuse me wire hairs uh, I've always loved Gordon setters. Um, English setters are so stylish. I've hunted behind some tremendous. Well, Anthony Hawks, uh, English cockers here in our office are spectacular. And you know, you, there's so many good dogs. Um, but I've I've sort of settled settled as kind of a short hair guy. 
Yeah, we could go on and on about that. Before we circle back to Pheasants Forever, give us give us just a little bit of a look because you you know, you you get out and you take advantage of every chance that you get. You're a busy guy, you work for a hunting organization and a cons- wildlife conservation organization, so you're certainly busy in the fall season, but you do get out and you hunt a lot. Give us a little insight as to kind of what your fall season looks like because I know you you do some hunting locally and you'll travel and, and hunt various states, so give us a little look into that. Yeah, so, um, you know, the blessing and the curse. My, my wife and I have been married, you know, a number of years, and we've never been able to have kids, which is is a bummer but it, that means we we have bird dogs and every weekend uh i've kind of got a blank check to make my own yeah. uh it uh, my, the obligations um after work in my life are are pretty limitless and i'm a guy that um you know when when the working day is done on friday i don't have any hesitation about putting a you know, a Trampled by Turtles CD or Roger Klein and the Peacemaker CD or Pearl Jam CD hit and play on the truck and driving seven hours Friday night and spending uh, the rest of the weekend somewhere in, in bird country, you know, lacing up the boots and, and hunting all weekend long. So um, I my folks live in Escanaba still, so I always have a Michigan license and I always hunt uh, rough grouse and in Timberdoodle back home. My brother works for the U.S. Forest Service for the Shawamigan Nicolay Forest out of Rhinelander. Ah, and okay. he happens to have all the logging maps out of <laughs> northeast Wisconsin. So uh, <clears throat> he, he and my nephew um, are... You know, they always has historically been big time anglers, but my nephew has really gotten my brother more and more into bird hunting. So I always end up in northeast Wisconsin hunting with my brother's family. And then my wife's family has a cabin in Burnett County near Burnett Douglas County in northwest Wisconsin. So I I have a grouse camp every year with some buddies at that cabin. So I hunt Wisconsin a ton. On the Minnesota side, I I hunt um, rough grouse. Oh, probably four or five different distinct areas um, from Pine City to Sandstone to uh, the Park Rapids and Detroit Lakes area religiously at least a couple times a year throughout all of those. And then on the pheasant side, I get down to my buddy Billy, Captain Billy, who I do radio with, owns a cabin in west central Minnesota in in Sox Center. So I always spend pheasant camp at Billy's cabin, and we hunt public lands, WPAs, primarily waterfowl production areas for pheasants, uh, around the opener. And I normally get with him a couple times a year and hunt public lands in his neck of the woods. And then I've got a couple cherry public land spots that I hunt down in the southwest corner of Minnesota uh, for pheasants as well. There's a there's a place that once a year it's across the street from kind of a pumpkin and squash farm that my wife's like, okay, we got to make that trip and go pheasant hunting and then pick up Halloween pumpkins. So <laughs> uh, that's that's any excuse to put it on the calendar. We do that one, um, and then I typically hunt. Um, uh, either Nebraska or Kansas or both for pheasants, quail, 
maybe prairie chickens once a year. Montana is kind of an every three years ritual for me. It's on the calendar for Labor Day weekend this year. Going to do a horseback hunt with some short hair guys I know for Sharpies and Huns, which I've never done, but that's that's a bucket list one I get to cross off this year. So, um, you know, Iowa's in there, um, and I guess in a, yeah, I've hunted Oklahoma, I've hunted Texas for quail. In a given year, I generally have about seven licenses. It rotate a little bit. I've been hunting a little bit more quail as quail forever has grown recently. I hunted Alabama last year. I've got a Georgia hunt on the books this coming year. But, you know, the one, like I said, the the sad part is we haven't ever been able to have kids. The positive is my my pups have been um, sort of anthropomorphized to uh, <laughs> to become our to become our children and they like to run, so I, uh, I point the truck to bird country on on Fridays and figure out where I'm going to go for the weekend. I love it, Bob. I think I think people's uh, people's heads may be spinning right now. I think I'm going to rephrase the question. Let's start by listing <laughs> listing the states that you don't hunt. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a couple I have. There's, you know, there's there's definitely some on the bucket list that I got to get crossed off. You know, I gotta I've got to do the Hell's Canyon hunt i have oh, yeah. not done that one yeah. i've got to get down to arizona and do the patagonia hunt and both of those you know as as i'm getting you know into my mid middle 40s now both of those will kick you in the behind i've got to get those accomplished or stay really well in shape um, in, in the near future but those are two of the big ones and i've always i've always daydreamed about that um, tundra ptarmigan hunt in alaska oh yeah um, but I can't just, I've never been able to justify, uh, making the drive with my pups that far. Cause I, I don't really want to do that hunt without my own dog yep. and you burn up. Like, I mean, that's like a two week commitment and I don't want to fly with my dogs just because I think that that would be too much stress, at least on my older dog. I think my older dog would come unglued. My young dog might not even know it happening but my older dog just would come unglued and it'd be too stressful but I, I haven't done that and then you throw into the fact that I've heard that that's not I mean it's beautiful but it's not that great of a hunt it's not that super challenging and you kind of you shoot one and you're like all right did it so it's not it hasn't risen to a real high place on my list yeah it's a big commitment like you said too oh for sure for sure well, awesome. That's that's a that's a cool look, and and uh, you definitely you spend a lot of time in the outdoors, and and uh, you know a thing or two about upland hunting, and so it's, it's neat to give people that perspective. But let's circle back to pheasants forever here and transition a little bit. Give us a high level. I mean, I, I'm going to assume that a lot of our listeners are very familiar with Pheasants Forever. And uh, if not, you know, we'll certainly encourage them to look into this organization that, that supports our passions and what we love to do. But give us a give us a kind of a snapshot of what's going on at Pheasants Forever right now, this time of year, being July. Like you said, we're making progress towards that fever pitch excitement. But behind the scenes, when people are at their cabins and and uh, riding around on the pontoon boat, you guys are you guys are still hard at work, uh, you know, making sure that there's birds out there for the fall. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, I think about it. Um, 
there's maybe five things that percolate instantly when you ask you, okay, what's happening at Pheasants Forever right now? Number one with a bullet is the federal farm bill. You know, when you when you think about pheasant and quail habitat, the first acronym, and there's plenty of acronyms, but the first one that comes to mind is CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program. Yeah. So we're in a farm bill year, 2018 farm bill. That's that's front and center, um, and, and it's still very much in jeopardy in terms of are we going to get a new farm bill. Um, the last one was 2014. Right now, we've got um, the House has passed their farm bill, and the Senate has passed their farm bill, and they're, as you probably would imagine, significantly different. So there are, um, the next stage is they've got to go to conference committee with those two bills, and come out of that conference committee with a bill that can be voted on and passed by the entirety of U.S. Congress and then signed into law by the president. And this has to happen before the end of September. Otherwise, at the end of September, the current farm bill is is over. And then we're in complete limbo and we can't add additional acres. So our goal right now to just simplify things is take this House Farm Bill and Senate Farm Bill and ideally pick the best pieces from a conservation perspective out of each, get them into the neck the bill, the farm bill that will go in front of Congress and then get signed into the law, have that happen all before the end of September. And that's that's where, you know, if if you can do anything for for listeners of Upland Project Upland, yeah. uh, if they can do anything or take anything away, it's contact your U.S. Senator and U.S. Representative, or you, your two U.S. Senators and your U.S. Representative and say, get a farm bill done before the end of September. And ideally, you know, the, as many acres as possible in that farm bill, we've been pushing for 40 million acres for over a year. Um, right now, the, the most that uh, is in either of the two bills is 29 million acres. So, you know, when you're delivering that message, uh, you know, minimum of 29 million CRP acres, get it done before the end of September. So that's, that's number one. Uh, you know, number two that's going on is universally talked about across hunting and fishing. It's that archery movement, yep. recruit, retain, reactivate. Um, for for years and years and years, uh, license sales have been the number one source of revenue for state agencies to do habitat work. And as you know, as time goes on, and that baby boomer generation gets older and older and older, we've seen those numbers of hunters and subsequently number of folks that are involved in conservation and groups like ours uh, falling off. So our three across the entire collective outdoor industry, whether you're talking about conservation groups, state agencies, federal agencies, corporations, you know, we're focused on introducing those new new people, whether they're millennials, locavores focused on food, women, children, reactivating. Uh, you know, we, we need to get another, uh, well, not just another, but a bunch of new streams of folks into yep. the outdoors. Third thing that pops up for me is growing quail forever. That's that's really our, our growth area right now. Uh, it's 11 years old. Pheasants Forever is 36. Quail Forever is 11. And we've seen in the last couple of years, 
You know, if you think about that growth curve, you know, we're on an upward trajectory on quail, which is which is gratifying knowing that, you know, in many ways, quail, you know, if you think about the big three, pheasants, quail, and rough grouse, quail are probably the bird, upland game bird, that's struggling the most because of habitat loss. So we now's the time to, to save what does exist and add more acres. So quail's a big component, and then if you follow us on social media or a member of Pheasants Forever, you know that we're heavily involved in the into the pollinator honeybee and monarch discussion at the exact same habitat that's necessary to bring back honeybees which are responsible for one in three bites of food that we eat in this country when you think about vegetables and fruits um, as well as monarch butterflies the habitat that's necessary for those pollinators is the exact same habitat that's necessary for pheasant and quail brood cover, we look at that as being an opportunity for us to bring new and unique partners together for a common cause. And I guess the fifth thing is, you know, it's it's the public lands debate. Um, we look at ourselves as public lands creators. Uh, we we buy a tremendous amount of property across the country, but particularly in states like Minnesota and Iowa, where we have funding streams like the Legacy Amendment in Minnesota, where we buy land and then we turn it over to the state as a WMA or the feds as a WPA, and those become public hunting areas. So, you know, some of the attacks on this country's public land system is attack on our very whale life as uplanders. So, you know, those five things immediately come to mind is, okay, that's, those are focal points for us right now. Yeah, those are five, I'd, I'd call them pillars. I mean, they're definitely, they, they have the, the ability to move the needle for not only your organizations, but but obviously up on hunters. And, you know, the pollinators one, that, that's one that just, it really strikes strikes a chord just you talk about one in three bites of food being you know affected by by honeybees and you know i mean really you look at that and it's like if you can't convince somebody to get on board and get behind that mission i mean we got we got bigger problems but it's interesting because the that's what i i've seen you know quite a few conservation organizations do and i think it's a great move is, is look for those areas where it's bigger than you know it's bigger than the than the bird that's on the banner of our flag it's 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 bigger and it means more to more people and how do we get those like you said unique partners involved in these movements because because we need that yeah and, and it's telling that story you know our mission is is habitat right creating upland habitat and you're exactly right it's bigger than the pheasant or the quail logo that's embroidered on our on our shirts it's that habitat um you know, filters sediment and, and pollution, and improving water quality. It keeps soil on the ground through native roots, native plants, and stronger root systems. It creates habitat not only for ringneck pheasants, but there's all sorts of songbirds and, and wild turkeys and ducks and different things that use those um, those habitat acres. But then, you know, the thing that gets glossed over. I think in general, you know, key messages these days, and it it maybe pops up in my mind because I've been reading so much Sigurd Olson lately, is this idea of what it means to us as humans. You know, this this habitat, these wild places, these these lands, nature, it's 
critically important to our healthy way of life. You know, because if you, you know, I, I live in the concrete jungle of the Twin Cities, yeah. and we need places to escape. And we can't always, you know, travel the five hours to get into the boundary waters. So that WMA, 30 miles outside of a metro area, is critically important to, yeah, it's critically important for pheasants, for water quality, for habitat. It's also critically important to human beings. And I think that that can often get overlooked. I mean, that that's part of just being, you know, there's so much craziness and, victi- you know, vindictiveness, yes. easy for me to say. <laughs> um, you know, getting out there with nature, walking behind a dog, you know, that that equalizes a lot of things in life. And that's, um, that's awfully important. I absolutely agree with that. I, I think, you know, if we lose, if we lose the connection to the natural resources and the habitat, you know, we got, we have a problem for sure. And and I thought about it when you mentioned earlier where, where you proposed to Meredith and you talked about the importance of place. And I do think that is one thing that upland hunters well people that enjoy the outdoors in particular is we've got that going for us in that when you pursue something like upland hunting with so much passion and so much dedication and you do it in unique places unique and wild places it creates such a strong connection that it's almost you know you'd be surprised if you didn't come back to your house in the twin cities and start thinking about how can we preserve this how can we conserve this you know that that the power of the wild places that we pursue upland birds is really something special. Oh, yeah. And you think about some of your favorite uh, wildlife paintings, right? Yep. The ones you gravitate to, you're like, oh, yeah, that looks like the berry patch. Yep. Right? I, I, that, I know that bird it flushed exactly like that, you know, <laughs> and that's where you can put yourself into that scene and, you know, you want 200 bucks for the 300 bucks, whatever you want. I, I got to put that above my mantle. Yeah. So, you know, when it's, when it's uh, March 1st and I can't chase anything, I can put myself there. Yes. Yep. All right, Bob. Well, let's, let's leave the listeners. We got a couple things here as we finish up. I want to, I want to touch on briefly. Let's talk about pheasant forecast just in a sense of you know what's your anecdotal report what are you hearing around the office as far as hatch conditions and you know i'm I'm understanding that we've got a you've got a huge huge region to talk about pheasant and quail but but what's your what's your gut feeling kind of around town locally what are you feeling for hatch conditions this year um okay so so the first thing we're going to consider is the winter and i'd say relatively mild winter across the majority of both the pheasant to a lesser extent we you know we don't have to worry about as much the quail range right but from a pheasant perspective it wasn't uh it wasn't a whiz banger you know there wasn't tremendous amount of snow um or cold that we have to worry about so the good news is um adult hens probably came into spring nesting season in strong condition. That means that they're going to have bigger clutches. They're going to be, um, you know, just healthier to produce birds. Um, You know, also relatively late. So the second component is uh, spring habitat, which is related to spring weather. So on the habitat side, you know, compared to where we were a decade ago, we've lost, 
you know, 20 million acres of CRP, tons of conversion of prairie, native prairies across the country. So compared to a decade ago, we're in we're in tough condition right now. That's why the farm bill is so critically important to put some of those acres back. The other thing that was a negative is we had many parts of the pheasant country really late winter. If you follow uh, any of us, you, me, on Instagram in the upper Midwest, um, we had a we did have a a wallop of a snowstorm (laughs) that that came. uh, Gosh, that was it was uh, in April. April, right? And it wasn't just like a dusting. I mean, we got we got hammered. And so that was bad news from the perspective of, you know, things things were really, really delayed in terms of nest initiation on the pheasant side. And what that means is um, it condensed the nesting season, which makes things tougher. Because a pheasant and a quail, they will put down a nest, and if, uh, say, a, a raccoon comes in and wipes out their eggs, as long as none of those eggs have hatched, they, uh, pheasant and quail will uh, re-nest. Now, they, if they had maybe 12 eggs that first time, their re-nesting attempt will be less eggs. Maybe it'll be seven. But the goal or the, the ideal scenario, right, is that, that those first nests are successful, birds hatch, and, uh, you know, those 12 eggs go off and become chicks. Yeah. As things are condensed, those opportunities to re-nest get shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, so that's that's a negative on the spring, both weather and spring habitat conditions. The other thing that's been a negative is we've had a fair amount of really heavy rains mm-hmm. beginning in mid-June. So the peak of the hatch, roughly speaking, for, for pheasants is June 10th. Well, if you look at the weather, what the weather was like across much of the um, upper Midwest June 10th, we got pummeled with some pretty heavy thunderstorms and and heavy rains. What that means is washed out nests through gully washers, really heavy rains. If the chicks had hatched, they they could have died from exposure because those young chicks, pheasant chicks, quail chicks are really susceptible to cold weather conditions. You add some wetness to that, and they're really in tough condition. So, Again, if they have hatched a pheasant and then they lose that clutch, a pheasant won't re-nest. If their nest got gully washed while there were still eggs, it will re-nest. So both those things, you know, the, the tough, heavy rains came at a time where they probably were really starting to hatch, probably lost a fair number of birds during those rainstorms. So... You got to remember, all things are local, or all weather is local. Yeah. So I'm speaking in general generalities. I have heard some some good reports, particularly South Dakota. They've had better reports than many states about what's happening out there. I'm optimistic with a little dose of reality on what the future holds for, or at least what the fall holds. But I want to temper that with. Uh, another thought, you know, one thing that we've seen over time related to membership numbers and bird numbers, the idealist in me wants to believe that when times are tough, habitat numbers are, are down, farm bills down, bird numbers down, that upland bird hunters will rally to the cause, will become members. 
Unfortunately, the data says the opposite. When times are tough, our member numbers are tough. When times are great, like 07, 08, when we were having 60-year high bird numbers in South Dakota and 40-year high bird numbers in, in Minnesota and Iowa, we were highest membership numbers of to- all time. Because people were excited, they were jacked up, they were invested, they were, they were into it. So, you know, the thing that troubles me is, okay, we are in a tough time. Weather's been tougher. Farm bill's been a challenge. The political scene, state by state, is challenging. We need people that care about these birds, about these resources, to join Rough Grouse Society, to join Quail Forever, to join the Minnesota sharp Grouse Society, right? Whatever your favorite bird is, yep. whatever your favorite organization, I don't give a rip of which one it is, join, help it out. Um, that it, It's the only thing that's going to make a difference um, during these, these troubling times. So a uh, little dose of reality and a, a plea for people to, to get involved. Yeah, that's great perspective and uh, appreciate you sharing that. I'm glad that you answered the question about, you know, bird outlook the way that you did because you know, I, I have to be careful. I don't want I don't want people to forecast what they think is going to happen in a sense. I, I'm glad that you talked about what are the factors at play and you kind of relate them to some some recent examples and how that can affect the birds. But as we all know, you know like you said, it's different across regions and, and different localities. And it's just what are the things that people should be paying attention to and observing to make them more knowledgeable about it. And, and I think you answered that very well. Yeah. And it, what's interesting, it seems like upland hunters more than most deer hunters, for instance, let's compare upland hunters and deer hunters, for example, upland hunters tend to be swayed, maybe not the hardcore folks, but the, the fringe, they tend to be swayed by what the forecasts say, Yeah. Like, oh, whether or not I'm going to buy a license this year or not. When you think about deer hunters, like, yeah, you might hear what the state DNR says about the, the herd for that year, but it's such a tradition yes. that people buy the deer license and go to camp, deer camp no matter what. If, you know, the folks that own, probably the folks that listen to Project Upload podcast and own bird dogs, they're going to buy the licenses no matter what, but it's our, you know, we've got to get those other folks that, you know, the, the brothers and the, the friends, the buddies that, Yep. You know, only get involved when, oh, you know, it's a 60-year record high of pheasants <laughs> in South Dakota. I'm going to go and yeah, shoot a, my limit of birds and, you know, drink beer and then wake up the next day and go shoot another. You know, we got to get those folks to commit to going year after year after year because it it is more than just shooting, quote-unquote, my limit of roosters. Yes. You know, think about the fun that you have with the buddies, the walk through nature, the, you know, spending time with the with the bird dog. You know, that should be all the more important things than the my limit of roosters. Absolutely. And talk to any anybody that's going to a, their, their traditional deer camp in northern Minnesota and Wisconsin over the past few years, and, you know, they're going for the tradition. They're not necessarily not necessarily going for the venison lately, and, and we, don't, uh, we don't need to go too much further down that road. But I don't want to open up a can of worms here. I'm just going to ask you to quickly – I'm curious, with all of the, all of the chatter about West Nile virus and rough grouse um, going on right now, 
what is the – I haven't heard pheasant mixed into that conversation at all or quail for that matter. Is there anything, any buzz around other species on West Nile virus right now? Yeah, there, there, there isn't. Um, I have not heard of a case of West Nile involving uh, pheasants and quail at all. Um, a couple years ago, we, you know, we had some concerns around um, – the quote-unquote bird flu that was in um, chicken farms in um, across the upper midwest Uh, but there were again there wasn't any any cases of uh, that being in the wild pheasant population so to my knowledge there there isn't any uh, cause for alarm when it comes to west nile and pheasants but you know who knows there, yeah there's a, a lot we a, don't know about that right it's now. an awfully scary thought when you think about um you know what cwd has um yep. has meant to the deer hunting community and uh you're thinking about the some of these other epizootic uh problems uh and, and it definitely is alarming yeah Yep, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad. One thing I've been talking a lot about with, you know, with off air and with, with a lot of people, and we did the podcast on it last week, but the, the one positive that's coming out of this right now is the awareness and, uh, and the attention that people are paying to it. So I'm, I'm happy that that is happening. And I would imagine that if there are concerns with other species, we will, uh, we'll, we'll get the experts on it ASAP. Now, where is Pheasant Fest going to be in January of 2019? So February, oh, February of 2019, okay. um, yeah, we'll be in uh, Schaumburg, Illinois, so um, just north of the Chicago area. First time the event has been um, in Illinois. It is, uh, what might surprise folks is Illinois is our third largest Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever state from a membership perspective. Awesome. So uh, there's been an appetite and a hunger to have our, our signature event come to Illinois for a number of years. And we, we looked at Schaumburg, it, it sort of stems out of the baseball world. I, back in my minor league days, there was a team, the Schaumburg Flyers, that was in the same division as the Saints. And we always looked at Chicago and just said, gosh, we can't crack that nut. That's just going to be too expensive. It's just too hard for to get people to go into downtown. And, you know, we looked at Schaumburg and said, you know, this is 20 miles from, from the airport, from O'Hare. O'Hare, it's, um, you know, 50 miles or so from the Wisconsin border, which Wisconsin's a top five membership state for yeah. us as well. Uh, we got a ton of members in northern Illinois. Like this is this is the ticket. Schaumburg's going to be a spectacular event. It's going to have some different wrinkles to it uh, compared to you know one thing we like to do where whether it's in Kansas City or Sioux Falls like it was last year, the Twin Cities is try to find the unique local wrinkle. And, and one thing we've been exploring is the fly fishing component ah. to you know that driftless area, yes. that Wisconsin, yep. and the, that appetite in Northern Illinois. So. We're looking at okay, how do we make this a um, a fin and feather uh, a fin and feather component uh, to pheasant fest? So, yeah, Schaumburg, Illinois, February twenty second through the twenty fourth, uh, pheasantfest.org for more details. Excellent. I got a brother in law in Chicago. He might uh, he might have a roommate that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah. It, no, it's for anybody. I, I have uh, I've been to it one time when I was in Minneapolis a couple years ago. It's for anybody that hasn't been and uh, listeners in that area. You have to go. You got to check it out. There's there's so much there. Um, looking forward to that one. That should be very cool. 
that's all I got for you, Bob. This has been this has been a blast. I really, really appreciate you coming on the Project Upland podcast. Oh, I, oh, one more question: How many members? Uh, how many members strong are Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, and then together? Yeah, yeah. So, so the combination is about one hundred forty-five thousand total. Quail Forever is about eighteen thousand of that right okay. now. So, yeah, we 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 want to be two hundred thousand, just like everybody else. But uh, the key is, you know, if you are a bird hunter listening, get involved and you know attend your local chapter banquet. You know, get involved in your community. And if you're a grouse hunter, join Grouse Society. Just get involved. And uh, Nick, I really appreciate you having me on. I appreciate what Project Uplands doing for, you know, getting, you know, Uplands introduced to so many folks in the digital world yeah. um, and through your podcast. It's wonderful to have you guys in this community, and uh, really appreciate the opportunity today. Yeah, absolutely. The pleasure, the pleasure has definitely been mine, Bob. I appreciate it. And I do, it's a goal of mine to get, uh, to get the Captain Billy Hildebrand as a guest on the podcast. So I'm going to leave it up to you to plant the seed and, uh, and we'll have to make that happen at some point. <laughs> oh, I don't think it'll take too much horse training. We can make that happen. We can get him on. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Bob. Well, thanks again for your time today. Appreciate it. And where can people go to find out more information about all the great stuff we talked about and join the fight? Yeah, for, you know, all the natural spots, pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org. Look us up on, you know, we've got Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram for all of them. And uh, look me up on uh, Instagram. I'm Pheasant Bob on Instagram and uh, Bob St. Pierre on Twitter. And um, love to answer questions and interact with, with listeners. Yep, you heard it here, listeners. Reach out to him. Bob's a great guy. Uh, I think you learned that listening today. All right, Bob, take care. We'll be in touch. And, again, I really appreciate it. All right, thanks, brother. See you, buddy. You've been listening to the Project Upland Podcast. That does it for this episode. As your host, I would like to personally thank you for listening to this episode of the show and remind you that we are brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp and Onyx Maps. Head over to projectupland.com. We've got it all for you there. Articles, videos, more great stuff from Project Upland and Northwoods Collective. Check it out at projectupland.com. And don't forget, you could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast gear giveaway. All you have to do is subscribe to this podcast, hit that little subscribe button, leave us a rating, leave us a review, and share the podcast post. You could be next week's winner. Also, we would love to hear from you. Please use the contact form at projectupland.com or send me an email directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. We could talk about bird dogs. We could talk about shotguns. We could talk about hunting trips you have planned. We can talk about future podcast guest suggestions. I would love to hear from you. Send me an email. That's it for this week's episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.